0: James, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to James 5, 1 to 6. I'm beginning to read a verse 1 of James, chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This chapter opens with some pretty direct words. It says, now listen, you rich people. Verse 1, come now, you rich people, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. We need to ask which rich people are being referred to. And as good inductive Bible students, we need to look back to the previous material in this book of James to see, did rich people get addressed preceding this verse in the book of James? And when you do that and you go to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you see who is being addressed here. 2, 6, and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court. They do not blaspheme the fair name by which they have been called. The rich people in chapter five are the same rich people in chapter two, namely, listen carefully, the lost, unsaved rich people, the unconverted wealthy people, those who have not come to Christ with saving faith, And have healthy assets. These are the kind of rich people that this passage is addressing. Not born-again, converted, blood-bought, redeemed rich persons. But those who are trusting in their wealth and not Christ. To give them status, standing, identity, and worth. The rich persons in this country and others that have no conscious dependence on God for their way but instead run roughshod, exploiting and aggressively treating those who have less money than they do. We're talking about non-Christian, exploitive, aggressive rich people. Now, we say that in chapter 2, these aggressive uh, rich persons who do not have faith in Christ exploit The worker, the hard work-a-day person who is in their employment. In fact, they even go so far as to take a person with modest means to court to try to get more money out of the person. They haven't even paid the debt they owed to the worker who is in their employment. This doesn't sound that different than today. There are persons who have a lot of money who do not have Jesus, who throw their weight around, and mock and spurn those who do love Jesus. In many circles, exploitation and aggression are behaviors that are admired, running roughshod over the so-called little persons and pushing them around, even if they have no means to defend themselves in a court of litigation. We see that in America, we see that in Canada. At times we see that in the Bahamas, I'm sure. Years ago, my father had a born again Christian friend, an investor, and a businessman who wanted to open a large new funeral home. There were many, plenty of wealthy, lost, aggressive, exploitive uh, people around the property he wanted to build the funeral home on. And they absolutely hated the concept of having a funeral home as a neighbor to their businesses. This is what one of the mean neighbors, rich, mean neighbors, said, and I quote. I don't care what your deed or my deed says. You'll never put drainage over my land. And I'll fight you in court until you're both out of time and money. That's James 2, 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And so according, moving back to chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, according to James 5, 1 to 6, God says two things. He says first, I want you to do something if you're in that court category. If you're rich and you don't have Christ as Savior exploiting others and you're aggressive and you're only looking out for number one, I want you on the one hand to do something and on the other hand I want you to know something. And the first thing that God says to these rich folks that don't love Jesus or trust him as Savior, he says to them weep and wail. Weep and howl. Come now you rich, weep and howl. God says to the person who's trusting in their balance sheet and their assets instead of the finished work of Christ on the cross, and they throw their weight around to exploit others who have less money than them, God says to them, you weep, and you howl. That's the first thing that God wants unsaved rich people who are mean-spirited to know. You ought to weep, and you ought to howl. Notwithstanding all you have, you ought to weep, and you ought to howl. Then God says, moving from what you need to do in a person in that category, what you need to know if you're exploiting and being aggressive and throwing your weight around and being unjust to people that work for you, taking them to court, suing them. You need to know something if you're an unsaved rich person who has that mindset. You need to know that you need to weep and wail. And we're going to get four reasons God gives to those kinds of persons that they ought to weep and howl. Now, that God would tell them one thing to do is to weep and howl may strike you as odd. Wail here in the Greek is aludzo. Aludzo. Doesn't that sound like howl? Aludzo. It's probably odd to your thinking that a very, very rich, lost person should howl in misery because after all, a lot of us entertain ourselves by watching their lives on television and the lives of the rich and famous and coveting, reading the magazines and such. The world and the worldly Christian and the carnal Christian would suggest that the very, very rich lost person has quite a lot of other things they should do. Socialize, enjoy, invest, travel, build, collect, trade, lecture, write, party, relax. But God says, weep and wail. Weep and wail. Why? This brings us from what God says the unsaved, exploitive, lost, and aggressive, wealthy person ought to do, which is to weep and howl. Now it gives us four reasons why that person should do that. We move from the what to the why. Why should such a person in that category weep and howl? Why should the lost, exploitive, unconverted, aggressive, litigious person who's rich, why should they, in fact, weep and howl? What do they need to know? They need to know four reasons why they should weep and howl. Four reasons that God gives that they ought to weep and they ought to howl. And Number one is the first part, second part of verse one. They should do that because misery is moving in. Misery is moving in. Do you see it there? This latter part of verse 5-1? For your miseries which are coming... Upon you. First reason that a wealthy, unregenerate, mean spirited, affluent, and rich person should weep and howl is because misery is moving in on them eventually. The second reason they ought to weep and howl is that material wealth will depreciate. Material wealth will depreciate given enough time. Verses 2 and 3, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. God says the clock is ticking and you may have a lot saved, you may have a lot invested, you may own a lot of stuff, but the clock is ticking and one day all that you own will depreciate. When Rockefeller died, the streets of New York City were abuzz with the question, what, how much did he leave behind? A wise family members said, how much did he leave behind? Everything. He left everything behind. There are no bumper hitches on funeral coaches. Have you noticed that? No U-Haul trailers to go to the cemetery to inter a body. Exploitive, aggressive, unsaved, wealthy folks should really do what God says and weep and wail because number one, misery is moving in and number two, material wealth will depreciate. But there's a third reason. Forgotten accounts payable are not forgotten at all. Verse four, behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields in which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. God says the the accounts payable you think have been forgotten because the little person isn't at your door every day. God hasn't forgotten. And so the person who's rich and does not have Jesus as Lord and Savior, who is aggressive and exploitive and lousy at paying their debts, should weep and they should Howl, because misery is moving in and because their material wealth will depreciate and because their forgotten accounts payable are not forgotten at all in heaven. And the fourth reason, private and personal excesses are neither private nor personal. The person who's aggressive and exploitive and unsaved and runs ramshod over others with glee They think perhaps that their private and personal excesses are just that, private and personal. Mind your own business, they might say. But God says that those kinds of excesses are really not private. God knows about them, and they're really not personal. God's going to hold them accountable for them. God says in verses 5 and 6 that these private and personal excesses hurt others. They hurt others, and they're known to God. Verses 5 and 6. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. I'll say it again. We're not talking about born again, spirit-filled, redeemed wealthy persons. Truly the poor is called the righteous with the opposite being the rich person that's being addressed in this passage, which I'll say it again, is unconverted, not a Christian, depending on their own stuff, their own smarts, their own assets, their own private homes, their own jets, their own investments to make a way for them in life. We all know Bill Gates. Not personally, we know of him. Multi-billionaire. Started Microsoft. Microsoft. He built a $60 million U.S. home near Seattle, $60 million. And Bill bought a painting, one painting for that house, and the painting cost him $30 million U.S. One half of the cost of his mansion, he sank into one painting he liked. Bill Gates, if he gives any thought to God, and I don't know that he does, pray for him, if he does give any thought to God, I'm quite convinced that Bill Gates probably doesn't think that God cares about him spending $90 million on a house and a painting. But James 5, 5 and 6 would argue otherwise. You have lived luxuriously on earth and led a life of want and pleasure. You have f- fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. God does care a lot about material excesses and self-indulgent luxuries. He cares a lot about these things and God sees the starving person in Nassau and around the world. God sees the homeless person in Nassau and around his world. And God makes the connection between the world's Bill Gateses and the world's soon to die due to starvation. And look at the connection again in verses five and six. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now watch it. In so doing, everything that verse five says that they do, there's the connection six. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. When the person who's trusting in their wealth and is a bully with their wealth and looks down on people who don't have as much money or assets as they do, they have, according to verse six, condemned and put to death the innocent poor. Oh yes, God is really bothered by the lost, exploitive, aggressive, rich who have not trusted Jesus to be Savior because God sees these and their behavior as being murderous in the neglect of other persons. Of course, God sees that, and it bothers God, and God calls that sin because God made the needy person in his image. God cares for the person in need. Proverbs 3 27 to 30, give us a window into God's heart for the innocent poor. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back. And tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives in security beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause. If he has done you, no harm. God, our God, is for those who work hard but don't have a lot of money. God, our God, is for those who are in legitimate need. God, our God, is for those who mean us no harm. So, let's review. This passage is speaking to wealthy persons who reject the cross of Christ, who are unredeemed, unconverted, unregenerate, who throw their weight around because of what they own and have saved and invest to be exploitive of people around them, to be aggressive toward people around them, to not pay the debts they're due because they know the people they owe the money to will not take them to court. And God says those kind of folks should do something. And rather surprisingly, the one thing that God tells those folks to do is to weep and to howl. And the passage goes on to tell those folks four good reasons why they ought to weep and howl. Number one, misery is moving in. Number two, material wealth will depreciate. Number three, forgotten accounts payable are not forgotten at all. And number four, private and personal excesses are neither private nor personal because they hurt others and they're known to God. Now, so far, I believe I've told you what the text says, what does it say? I believe we've done our observation. And I believe that we've moved from observation to interpretation. I believe I've tried to help you understand what does this mean? What does this paragraph mean? But I have not as yet gone to the so what question. I have not yet helped you to see how does this apply to your life? How exactly Do we apply a message of scathing warning to lost, exploitive, aggressive rich people when we are saved and most of us are not filthy rich? How does this apply to us? Well, we ask a question, are there any lost, exploitive, aggressive, unsaved rich persons in the house? Not likely. Another question, are there any lost persons in the sanctuary this morning, perhaps. Are there any rich persons this morning? Before you eliminate yourself and you say, well, I'm not rich, I'll just check out here. I won't listen anymore because I'm not particularly rich. I work from paycheck to paycheck. There are rich persons in the sanctuary this morning and it's basically every one of us. Did you know That if you have food in your refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the world's population. Did you know that if you have money in the bank, in your wallet, and some spare change, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthy? Do you know that if you woke up this morning with more health than illness, then you are more blessed than one million persons who will not survive this week? Do you know if you have never experienced the danger of battle, the agony of imprisonment or torture, or the horrible pangs of starvation, you are more advantaged? Than more than 50 million persons this morning on earth. Check that, not 50, 500 million persons on earth. And if you can read your Bible and the screens that project words, if you can read, you are more fortunate than 3 billion people in the world who cannot read at all. Well, we're rich. This message is for the unsaved rich who exploit the poor. But we need to remember as saved persons that compared to a vast percentage of the world's population, we all are very materially rich. So what are some so what's? The what is godless, unregenerate, aggressive, exploiter of rich people. You weep and howl, that's the what. The why, why God tells those folks to do that is that misery is moving in, material wealth will depreciate, forgotten accounts payable are not forgotten at all, and private and personal excesses are neither private nor personal. They hurt others, and they're known to God. So let's take some so what's. What difference should this make in my life, and what difference should this make in all of your lives? Well, the first so what, I think, is it would be good to lovingly and prayerfully help certain lost, affluent persons to see that their current ease is not as significant as their coming misery. Now, By that, I don't mean you just go right for the juggler when someone doesn't know Jesus and they have a lot of money and say, you know, you're, a lot of misery is coming your way. Yeah, stay tuned. Now, You lovingly have a conversation as as God enables, and you talk about maybe a question or two like this. You know, some people have a lot more than others, but you know, in the mind of God, He sent His Son to die for all people. You know, some people that have things trust those things to make them important. Some people that are rich don't give a thought to God. See what happens. You're trolling. You're fishing. Leave them longing, not loathing. Just say a little bit. And if God opens the conversation, you go a little further. None of us can take anything with us. We're not redeemed by corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. Our church is full of people of all socioeconomic brackets. We love each other. If you won't lovingly tell them when God gives you the opportunity, who will? So what number two? Since material possessions depreciate, decide not to trust in them. Now I'm talking about us. I'm not talking about the exploitive, aggressive, unsaved, rich person. I'm talking about me. Since my material possessions will depreciate, I better decide not to trust in them for my identity. The things I have don't define me. I better not trust in my things for my security. Nor should I trust my things to give me Worth. None of us are what we buy. Not the car we drive, not the labels we wear in our clothing, not the schools we send our kids to. We are not defined by what we buy. The third, so what, is pay anybody you've cheated. That might be the cashier at Super Value. When she gave you $5 more in the change than you had coming to you. Well, Super Value's got a lot of customers. Millions of dollars of inventory. $5 won't bother them. It bothers God. Go back and say, excuse me, ma'am. This is my bill, I just, you just rang me through. I gave you such and such amount and you gave me $5 too much want to return it. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm a Christ follower. Wouldn't be right for me to go with five bucks. Pay anybody you've cheated. I haven't been here too long, but I'm starting to figure out that it's common for some Bahamians to say, I'll pay you, and they don't ever pay you. May that never be true in the body of Christ at Calvary Bible Church. If we owe a debt, pay it. Don't excuse it. Don't sweep it under the rug and hope it'll go away. Go to the person you owe the money to and say, I realize I owe you $100, and I'm going to be good for it, but could I give you 5 bucks a week and, and pay it down? Pay anybody, you've cheated. So what number four? After your necessities of life are paid for, food, shelter, clothing, medicine, after your necessities of life are paid for, share from any monies that are left over. Share with persons who can't themselves buy the necessities for their lives. That's why God gives any of us more money than our necessities require. So we'll share with persons who don't have enough money to meet the costs of their lives' necessities. That's why you have extra. That's why I have extra. We'll have a benevolence offering a little later. Keep that in mind. Just this week, <clears throat> behind our church property near Toot Shop Corner, two-story wooden house burned to the ground. One of the individuals we understand as I was having a seizure, and in having the seizure, this gentleman got involved with an electric fan, and somehow it shorted or something, and it caught on fire, and the house burned to the ground very quickly. There were 10 persons living in the house, from one-year-old up to a grandmother. Thank God nobody lost their life. They got out. Five of the children who lived in that house come to our Awana clubs. Five. Pastor Nicholas has been over to interface with the family and other leaders of our church have done that, and they want to rebuild. They're living, 10 of them are living with a neighbor. You, some of you already have heard of this, and you've come forward in loving kindness and given clothing and money and I thank you for that. A week from today, in the will of God, we're going to receive a special love offering for the family to help them after their fire. So you be prayerfully considering what you might like to give above and beyond what you give to this ministry to help this precious family. That will be on February the 12th. But let me say it again. The fourth so what of this passage is that after your necessities of life are paid for, share any monies left over. Share with persons who can't buy themselves the necessities of life. Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Now, I must say, before we finish this sermon, I must say that a careful reading of the Bible tells you something, that in both the Old and the New Testaments, there are lots of examples of wealthy, affluent, saved persons, both the Old and the New Testament. Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, Josiah, Philemon, Joanna, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, just to name a few. There are all kinds of examples of those who are materially rich in both the Old and the New Testament. The Bible has nothing against rich persons. And the persons that I just listed from the Scriptures didn't exploit anybody. They weren't aggressive with anybody. They didn't take poor people to court. They shared. They gave so that ministry could take place, so that churches could be planted. They shared. As you know, Joseph of Arimathea shared his unused burial tomb. I've been inside of it. Spacious. Lydia shared her home and all that it's contained for a brand new church in Philippi. And instead of being aggressive to others, these precious people were merciful and forgiving of others. Abraham forgave nephew Lot for taking the best real estate. Job forgave his accusatory comforters who were no comfort at all. David forgave the deranged king Saul that was trying to kill him. And folks, (laughs) prepared to two-thirds of the world, we are all filthy rich. So let's be rich like Abraham and Job and David and Solomon and Josiah and Joanna and Philemon and Joseph of Arimathea and Lydia. Let's be like them. Let's treat other people as precious and the things that we own as props with which we can do the will of God. Treat people as precious and treat the stuff that we own as props in the doing of the will of God. There was a Presbyterian pastor in Illinois who challenged the people of his congregation with this kind of a message I preach today. And a small group formed by itself in that church. It was a small group of wealthy men, a wealthy heir to an an inheritance, a vice president of a pension plan, an an entrepreneur, an editor, an author with a major book deal, and two successful real estate brokers. These men, of their own accord, led of the Spirit, formed a small group after a sermon like this. Listen to what the group's pastor, John Crosby, says about the group. We have decided that living with wealth should be spiritually difficult and remain so. Without the prod of conscience, wealth paralyzes. Smooth rationalizations and tempting power are too much for most of us when we stand alone. There are no comfortable, clear answers, but camels learned how. The body of Christ can begin to help people in need, end of quote. And by the way, this group of Presbyterian men named their small group the bruised camels. The bruised camels. This world needs a lot more bruised camels. Abraham and Job and David and Solomon and Josiah and Philemon and Joanna and Joseph of Arimathea and Lydia were all bruised camels. Could you be a bruised camel? According to Matthew 19, verse 24, the Savior said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This text calls each of us, the man in the pulpit and each of you in the pews, to choose the lifestyle of a bruised camel. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields in which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. God, we thank you that your word is hard-hitting, We thank you that your word is relevant. We thank you that there is an answer for selfish materialism, that camels can enter the kingdom of heaven, albeit difficultly. We pray, Lord, that you give us opportunity to live like bruised camels ourselves, mindful that we are yours, and mindful that we have a lot more stuff certainly than the average person in the earth. Lord, I thank you that we have the opportunity to let you be Lord of our money and Lord of the things we buy with money and Lord of our charitable giving and Lord of our compassion and Lord of our willingness to help those in need. We pray these things that you would be honored and glorified, Lord Jesus, and that you would draw all men to yourself. Amen.